Now, we are in the book of John. Last week, we, we took a chunk of a passage to look at the trial of Jesus, to understand the background of the trial of Jesus, to understand what's going on in the trial of Jesus. But the number one thing to understand in underlying all of that was that God was in control and he was in charge of all of that. And, and it's especially when Pilate says to him, don't you know I have the ability of life or death for you? And Jesus basically says, no, no, that's God. God's, God's gifted you with that right now, but God gave it to you. Just understand who's in charge, Pilate. And this is, this is what uh, caused him so much uh, of a struggle as he dealt with that issue. All right, now we're in John chapter 19. We're talking about the cross and I'm gonna read this passage. It's a long passage, all right? So, so bear with me, focus. Think about what's going on here. All right, carrying his own, and I'm gonna interject too, carrying his own cross. This was a Roman tradition. The cross beam was carried by the, the convicted criminal. Isn't that something? The crossbeam was carried by the convicted criminal. Jesus is carrying his own crossbeam. Jesus is the man that Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. He is not guilty. And yet now he's going to the cross. Why? Because Pilate has been maneuvered politically and to save his own skin, he's willing to sacrifice a person that he admits is innocent. Carrying his own cross, he went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, there they crucified him and with, two, with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign. For the place where Jesus was crucified near the city, was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Why those three? Aramaic is the language of the Jews. Latin is the language of the Romans. Greek is the lingua franca. It's the common language used by people all over the known world. Any person in Jerusalem would be able to read one of those languages and understand who was on that cross. The chief priest protested to Pilate, they said, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answers, what I have written, I have written. All right, that power play that we saw last week is still going on. They're still trying to get each other. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Throughout these passages, John has been saying, this fulfills scripture, this fulfills scripture, that scripture may be fulfilled, that scripture may be fulfilled over and over and over. We see things that were written hundreds, even a thousand years before this that are being fulfilled in the moment. Going back, I mentioned, going back all the way to Deuteronomy, I mentioned that last week with the scepter of Shiloh, the scepter that when Shiloh comes, Jesus, they couldn't put Jesus to death because they'd lost the ability to execute the death sentence. And in Deuteronomy, we are told that is a sign of the Messiah when the, when the Jews lose their ability to execute the death sentence, which they had just lost recently. Okay, I've talked about that. That's enough. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. It is the responsibility of the oldest child to take care of his mother. 
And so Jesus passed that responsibility on him. He took that responsibility on the cross for his mother. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, he said, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's interesting to me, Jesus was not killed by the Romans. He gave up his spirit. He had not died yet. He said, now is the time. And he gave up his spirit. It's a very interesting thing here that even at that moment, God was in charge. Jesus was in charge of what was happening. 31, now it was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Breaking the legs hastens the death. It's a, it's a very gruesome thing and how it works, and we don't need to get into that. Verse 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it was given testimony, and his, the man who saw that it, it has given testimony, his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies that you may also believe. These things happened so that scripture would be fulfilled. None of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. So John is emphasizing, I'm telling you the truth. This is what I saw. I was there because Jesus spoke to me and told me, take care of, take care of his mother. She became my mother by doing that. He says, I was there. I saw, I saw what happened. Scripture was fulfilled over and over and over. So we have this passage. This is something that people are very familiar with in many ways, but I wanna just kind of zoom out. I wanna take a bird's eye view and kind of talk about this in a broad way. I was thinking about this the other day because I came across this and this is something we see all the time on the news and in other things concerning debt, you know, and the situation in our country, the situation in this world, but especially in our country and in our economy, debt is a big issue, the national debt, corporations that are struggling with debt. Um, and these are kind of hard, national debt and corporation, these are hard to grasp. But when we start talking about personal debt, we all understand it. We all can grasp it a little bit better. And one of those that is very much in the news now has been student debt. As people discuss the amount of debt, they discuss uh, uh, predatory debt practices and, and, and debt forgiveness is a big issue. And I was thinking about that because we, we have a number of uh, institutions of higher learning, very fine institutions that are in our area, right? And you can look up and see what the debt load is for the average student at CNU, William & Mary, Old Dominion University, Regent, you can, all of them, Hampton University, you can look that up. That all is all in, there's, there's, there's these debt trackers that tell you that. It's very interesting. It's interesting to me that one of the highest loads is from students from ODU, Old Dominion University. So I encourage you, if you go to ODU, transfer to CNU. That shameless plug, all right? But what they found that, that at, at uh, most colleges is that almost 60% of the students who graduate graduate with significant debt. The average debt is forty dollars to $80,000 per student that, that those 60% are graduating with. 
And when you think about the average debt being, say, 60,000, you understand that means some people are carrying 150,000. I mean, it's just ac- incredible. And, and then credit card debt is a problem. Uh, 60% of Americans with credit cards carry debt from month to month because they can't pay it off in full. And I know some of you are going right now, you're going, okay, Bob, this is hitting a little close to home. All right, I don't know about you, so don't, don't worry. I'm not speaking directly to you. God is. Okay, so... <laughs> So we all have this debt, right? And, and then the question is, what do we do with it? How do we handle it? And I know this can be difficult because here's, here's things that we do. Some people, some people think about it every day with this constant burden, this feeling of a weight that's on them, this debt that is on top of them. Some people work very hard at structuring out, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay this off. If I pay this much, how long does it take? 72 years, holy mac. You know, you, you, you work hard at it. You're trying to take care of it. Some people, have you ever done this? I, I gotta tell you, when I, when I first got married, I was terrible with money. I didn't know how to, I, I wasn't taught, I was dumb. And, and some people act as if they're not there. And I tell you, to my shame, so I'm really being revealing here. I can remember getting a bill and putting it over on a desk, and then get another one and putting it over, and get another one and put it over, get another one and put it over. And, and, and the bottom one that came first disappeared. And because it disappeared under the pile, it's not around anymore. So I don't have to think about it. That worked for about a week and a half, right? You know how that is? That's the way some people deal with it. They act as if it's not there. They ignore it at their peril. Some people pay the minimum amount and just hope for something to come in the future. I want to win the lottery. You know, I hope I hope some rich uncle that I don't know about dies and leaves me all this money. Right. I never did that. Don't think I thought that. there's always this fear. And this is the greater fear, I think, in some for some people, the fear that you will work hard and pay off your debt and then something incredible, terrible, tragic will happen and you'll be back underneath debt all over again. And people can struggle with that. Well, I'm going to tell you, the Bible talks a lot about debt. It talks about our debt. It's another kind of debt. It's a debt that every person in the world has. It's a great debt that is accumulated by each of us because of our sin and our rebellion. And this is what I mean by taking the bird's eye view, zooming out. Where did that debt begin? It began at the very beginning with Adam and Eve. What happened? The serpent came, Satan came. And what did he do? He does what he still does now. He says, question God. Do you, did he really say that? That's what he asked. Did he really say that? And what is he doing? Undermining truth. He's saying, you can decide for yourself. I'm starting to sound like Voldemort, right? You can decide for yourself what is right, right? You can decide for yourself. That was the lie. Did he really say that? You can decide. And we see that today. It's still going on. You see that today who say they're followers of Christ, but then they'll look at part of the scripture and they say, well, I don't believe that. That part obviously is old and out of date and not true. And what's happening there? You are deciding. You have become God. That was the temptation. You can be God. You can be the captain of your own fate. You know, that sounds so cool, right? 
the captain of my own thing. Yes, I'm in charge, right? But here's the thing. I have been sitting back and observing myself for 66 years, and I am a crappy captain. I do not want me to be in charge of my fate because I'm a screw up and I blow it all the time. And I have about eight other words that mean sin, but we can say screw up or blow it or mistake or whatever. We have a debt that is totally beyond our ability to pay. The other thing scripture says, well, other thing that's true about debt is our conscience tells us about this debt. At times we sense the weight of our own wrongdoing. We look, you know, if you look around the world, all religions try to deal with this. They try to do it. They attempt to get people to make up for their wrongdoing. All of them have some sort of a means for atoning for sins, whether they call it sin or not. They have ways, what you need to do, work harder, suppress this, do this, whatever it is, work as hard as you can. And, and, and uh, I found for me, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I found for me as I dabbled in things, they didn't work because they depended on me to do it. They depended on me to be strong and always think the right thing and do the right thing and keep, treat people this way. And I, it's more fun to be mean. It's more fun to do. Listen, I, I don't want to, this is true. It is exciting and fun to sin. It can be. It can be a thrill. You pay horribly in the long run. It comes back and bites you hard. But I can remember, you know, doing things, taking things, and the exhilaration was powerful. But then I got caught. And suddenly the regret is way bigger than the exhilaration. We have this guilt. The Bible calls it sin. It's a, a universal awareness that people have. I, I, I've talked about this. I love to read, and I read a lot. I read a lot of, I, I, I'm, I read what atheists write. I, I read what Christians write. I read just all kinds of things because I want to know what people are saying. I want to hear everything people are saying and then figure out what's right, what's wrong, what do I agree with, what do I not agree with. And what amazes me is seeing in so many people's lives, people who, people who are avowed atheists that will say, I'm struggling with guilt. And what do they do? They tell themselves, you shouldn't feel guilty. Ignore it. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work for us. It, you can't. Some people try to deal with it. They do good moral things to make up for it. Some people simply are just crushed by it and they're defeated, living in their guilt. Some people try religious activities. Some people fight it and deny it and their conscience maybe is eventually dulled. You know, that, that whole thing of just ignore it. It's not true. What you did isn't wrong. Even though you feel like it's wrong, it's not we have this guilt. Our conscience tells us this. And it's a beyond our ability to pay. This is our central problem. The Bible says this is our central problem. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a word for this. It's not a popular word in our day. It's called depravity. It's the inability to deal with our own sin. We can't do it. It doesn't mean we're all horrible people. It doesn't mean we're all murderers, you know, or pedophiles. We're not all mass murderers. 
But we all have the potential to be because of sin. I really, um, there's an artist I really love. I love his music, Sufjan Stevens. And he wrote a song called John Wayne Gacy. I, in one sense, I'd encourage you to look it up and listen to it. In one sense, I wouldn't. It is a moody, depressing, it's a song about a mass murderer and how his life unfolded into becoming a mass murderer. And he would hide the bodies and the bones of his victims, 30-something victims, under the floorboards of his house. And Sufjan Stevens, who writes these quirky, kind of strange and wonderful songs, writes a song about this. You're just like, what were you thinking? What were you not thinking? But what's interesting is the last four lines of the song, this is what Sufjan Stevens writes. And in my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look beneath my floorboards for the secrets I have hid. See, he's admitting there's in me that potential. I have my own secrets. Maybe I didn't murder people. Maybe it's something else. But they're there and they're hidden. And I don't want anyone to see them. Our conscience tells us about this debt. And then God has provided a way. This is what we're looking at. This is this passage, the cross, that God has provided a way. This passage is a description of the provision. And this is not new. I don't think I'm going to tell you something you've never heard before. But let's remember this. Jesus, God's son, became a man, lived a perfect sinless life. He showed us God in the flesh. He showed us God in a human body. He loved, he cared, he showed compassion. He taught like no one ever did before or ever will. He came to Jerusalem. This whole, we've been leading up to this. He came to Jerusalem for one purpose. He came to die. That was his purpose. He told them it was his purpose. And then he just lived it out. He was arrested. He was falsely accused. Even the man who ordered his execution, Pilate, admitted that he was not guilty. And he was put to death by the most cruel and the most humiliating death known to man at that time. And that is where the debt is paid. And here it is in the passage we read later, knowing that everything had been finished and so the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus's lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Something really interesting is going on here. This shows, John wants us to see he wants us to see both sides of this. He, he shows us the spiritual side of it. He shows us the human side. He says, Jesus, in this agony, he got thirsty. That's a common thing that would happen to people hanging on a cross. They would get tremendously thirsty. And so he said, I'm thirsting, I'm thirsting. Why is John emphasizing this? Because as John is writing this, there is a heresy, a heretical group that is growing. They're called the Gnostics. And they said the body was evil. The spirit was good. And they said, you can't, we can't imagine. It would be impossible. It would be impossible for God to be in a human body. Therefore, they said, Jesus's body was not real. It was ethereal. It just looked real. He fooled everyone. In fact, they even said, if they didn't notice, when he walked through the dirt, he didn't leave footprints if people had noticed that. And so they had this, 
this heresy that was coming up, and it led to extreme abuses. So John is dealing with that heresy. John says, I was there. I was there. I watched it. And I watched him say, I'm thirsty. A phantom, a spirit doesn't need to drink. He needed to drink. And then John mentions the plant they use to lift the sponge, the hyssop plant. Now, we see that and we go, okay, the hyssop plant, what is that? It's a grass. It's a, it's a grass that can grow very tall and it can have a very hard, very stiff shaft, almost like, almost like bamboo, almost, right? And it can grow, if you don't trim it, it grows eight feet, 10 feet tall. And so you got this, so they cut that off. They put a sponge, you know, split it, put a sponge on the end and they took this hyssop plant and brought the sponge to his mouth. All right, so what? Well, let me tell you something. Every Jew who's reading this is going, what? Hyssop? Are you kidding me? Do you see that? And we, we non-Jews, we go, uh. And they go, let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to the angel that was visiting the houses. And to protect our houses, they said, sacrifice a lamb an unblemished lamb for sin. And John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not only that, he said, I want you to sprinkle the blood of that lamb, lamb on the sides of your doorpost and on the lintel, on the top. Sprinkle it on with what? With a hyssop, with hyssop so that every Jew, when they saw this hyssop going to Jesus' mouth, they're seeing there's a connection here. There's a connection here. A lamb died, the lamb is dying. There is, there is, no doubt this impressed them because that word was such a powerful word for them. And when we think in that way, this is what would trigger for them. And they would see this correlation because in John 1, 29, I just mentioned, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what kind of lamb did they have to have at the temple? They had to have a lamb without blemish. It could not have any spot that marred it. It had to be innocent. It had to be a perfect lamb. And what was Jesus? He was the perfect lamb. There was no blemish. Even the man who put him to death, said, I find nothing in him. There's no wrong in him. And so we have that correlation. And then Jesus says, it is finished. In verse 30 here, and you guys, I have that word over my, um, over my uh, door of my office, this word, tetelestai. This is the word, this is the Greek word for it is finished. This word means paid in full. The debt has been paid. I can remember when I was first introduced to this word, I, not long after I'd done that, I had paid off a car. You know, and you wait for your title to come, and it comes, and then there's a stamp on it, and written on my title of my, uh, of, of my car was paid in full. Paid in full. No more payments. The debt is paid. We have this debt, it's an unimaginable debt. And Jesus said, I pay it. I pay it right here, right now. And this is, this is what's great, I mean, the, the, the Greek language. This is in the perfect voice. 
What does that mean? The perfect voice means something has occurred and it never needs to be done again, ever, because it is completely done. Your salvation was accomplished on the cross. Nothing you can do will, will help it because it is done. It is done. You can live in the freedom of that. It's an amazing thing. Amazing thing. So he died in our place. 1 Peter 3.18 says he suffered once for sins. The righteous, the unblemished lamb, the righteous for the unrighteous. Last week I talked about this, how we see in this, in, in, in John 19 and, and John 18 and John, we see the great incredible lengths God went for you because he loved you. First sang, song we sang this, this morning was for God so loved the world. God so loved the world. What, what, so what? God loved the world, so what? He gave. He is a God who acts. He gave his only son. He gave his only son because of his love. And here we see it happening. The unimaginable pain that Jesus went through, not just the physical pain, the spiritual pain of atoning for sins. The unimaginable pain the father went through to see his son. Um, one of our daughters had lung cancer and we suddenly faced the fact that she might die. The unimaginable pain. I said, God, I would take that cancer in a minute. Let me die, not her. God sent his son to die not just for the just, but to die for the unjust, to die for everyone, to die for you, to die for me. God loved you so much that he did this before you ever existed in anticipation of you being here. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. There was great joy in front of him. And so he said, I will go through this. God went to these great lengths for you. Have you ever gone to great lengths for someone you love? You probably have. You just haven't necessarily thought of it that way. When, when, when our kids were real little, sometimes we'd go on vacation and, and, and we were struggling and, and, and I, I wasn't a great money manager. And so we, we were short a lot of times and I was just a youth pastor at a church, you know, not a big church, just a youth pastor. And, and so we did things on a shoestring budget. That's just the way it is. And a lot of you know how that is. This, it, our kids look back and say they had wonderful times with these things. So one time we, I said, I'm going to take our kid. We're going to go, we're going to go to Myrtle Beach. And they're just like, ah, they all love the beach. My wife loves the beach. I love the beach. It's awesome. And so we planned this vacation. I planned this vacation and I had a budget. I knew I had a budget. And so we, we didn't go out to eat. You know, we didn't do anything. But one night, you know, the piece de resistance, one night, we were going to go to where they, they had the jousting and the medieval knights, the jousting. And I knew my kids would love this for a number of reasons. They love that kind of old stuff. They think that's pretty cool. They love the ideas of it. You know, they love that we're going to have a meal that you eat with your hands and not with, with uh, forks and knives. You just pick up that big piece they give you like that. They thought that was the coolest thing in the world. I said, okay, we're going. That's what we're going to do. And they were so excited. And we went. It was so cool. And they were selling, if you wanted, you could have a drink in a cup, or if you wanted, you could get a goblet for eight bucks. 
And every one of my kids wanted a goblet. And I said, no, we don't have the money for goblets. I'm really sorry, kids. We don't have the money for the goblets. And they were fine. Okay, we understand. That's great. So, you know, they watched the jousting. And, you know, if you know the last part, uh, uh, two knights fight. And one's on the ground. The other puts his foot on him. He's got his sword like he's going to stab him. And he goes, uh, uh, you know. And this is where you learn about your kids. Because <laughs> I, look, look, I look over at Reagan. Reagan is like eight years old. And she's like, do, 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 do. And I look over at Cody. And Cody's like, he's looking at it. And he sees Reagan. And he goes, woohoo, woohoo. He's screaming out. And I'm going, there is evil in these children. There is evil, deep, deep evil in them. And we leave. And that night, I drove back to Medieval Nights and I went dumpster diving for goblets. And I pulled goblets out of the trash to give to my kids because why? Why? because I love them more than I was afraid of getting arrested for dumpster diving on, or more than just the humiliation of being seen in a dumpster, which is pretty humiliating because cars drove up every once in a while and there were people cleaning up and they'd come out and I, please don't throw away the trash now. Please don't throw away the trash now. Have you ever done something for someone you love, put so much work, so much effort into it for someone you love, but it was always joyous. Why? Because I came back to the, this crappy little motel we were staying in with goblets, and they were so happy. It was worth it. It was totally worth it. I would not do it again, but it was totally worth it. God God looked at us. He grieved the separation that we had created. He grieved over the sins that rendered us spiritually dead. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. The good news of the cross is that the debt has been paid. Free gift of forgiveness is available to all. Have you ever had someone pay a debt for you? You know, like maybe you ask somebody to, to watch your house while you're gone for a week and maybe you come back and they say, hey, you know what? They came with this little notice that you were late on your water bill and it was going to be shut off, so I paid it. You don't have to pay me back. It's okay. I just paid your water bill. It's only 128 bucks. What would you be like? You'd be like, oh, thank you. Thank you for not making me go through the hassle of redoing that and just... So thoughtful. But let's say, suppose, let's suppose that um, the person said, hey, you know, while you were gone, the IRS sent a judgment letter. You've been doing your taxes wrong for 10 years. You owe $75,000. I paid it. You don't have to pay me back. It's no problem. Okay, how would you react? Do you see something? This is something the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches this in a number, a number of different places. The Bible teaches this. The amount of debt that's forgiven correlates directly with the amount of joy that comes from the forgiveness of the debt, right? 128 bucks, wow, thank you. That's odd, thank you so much. $75,000, <gasps> amazing. I can't believe it. See, see how the joy, there's a difference, right? 
And then God tells us the debt I paid is infinite. You could have never paid it. You could have paid 75,000 over 10 years or 20 years maybe on a payment plan. But this, this debt, no payment plan can take care of. The amount of joy comes from recognizing how great the debt was that was paid. And that great payment of debt was motivated by love. Motivated by love. For God so loved the world. First John, same writer, another book later. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The stunning love that just doesn't forgive us, it adopts us. We are daughters and sons of the king. The question is simply this, if you've taken this step to accept his gift of salvation and turn your life over to him. Now, some people I know, I talk to some people, they say, turn your life over. That sounds like a very restrictive kind of, a, oh, now I'm bound by all this stuff. And I think for me or for many people here, they would testify that turning my life over to Jesus Christ brought me freedom, not bondage. It brought me sight where I was blind. At the end of this passage, at the end of John 19, we see something that I think is very interesting. Um, Jesus has died, and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus step out of the shadows, and they take the, the body of, of Jesus for burial. What is going on there? It says Joseph of Arimathea was a secret follower of Jesus, but he was afraid. He's he in the Sanhedrin probably, and he was afraid of what they would do to him if he admitted it. Nicodemus was very similar. Nicodemus, remember, he came to Jesus in John 3, and Jesus said to him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus like, man, what are you talking? You must be born again. There is a new birth, a spiritual birth that remakes us. And Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea at great personal risk decide to say, I stand for Jesus. We'll take his body. We have a new tomb that's never been used. It had to be a new tomb that's never been used. You can only be in your family's tomb. Jesus' family didn't have a tomb in Jerusalem. Joseph of Arimathea evidently had a tomb that was brand new, carved out of rock. And he said, this is where Jesus, I will stand for him. They came out of the shadows and declared their allegiance in the light. They were secretly followers, but now they respond and decide to declare it openly. It's the response they had. In the four Gospels, we see throughout this the story of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the response, the response of the crowd, the response of the soldiers, because here's the key. The cross of Christ demands a response. It demands a response. There are no neutral observers. There may be anger. There may be mockery. There may be worship. There may be belief. There may be unbelief, but it demands a response. The same, that's what happened then. It still happens today. We cannot look at this passage without seeing that it dem demands a response. Now, if you're struggling with that, if you're struggling with this, this whole issue, if you're struggling, you don't sure, you know what you believe, you're not sure about this passage, could this passage be true? It seems so, well, how could it be true? Man, I would love to talk to you. Not, not for me to preach at you or talk down to you, but simply to have a conversation and say, well, here's some resources. Think about this. Just so you think so that your response isn't an off-the-cuff, ill-informed response. It may be that you're struggling with doubts. There are things here or in the Bible that you go, I don't know, I don't understand. I'd love to talk to you. 
This is one of the great things about my job. I am paid to talk to people, and I love to talk. I'd love to talk to you, and I promise I'll give you time to talk to. Come and meet. Meet and talk. We have information. I'd love to help with information, advice, whatever. Or if you say, Bob, listen, I'm a Christian. I am living for God. Okay. I just want you to remember what, what accomplished that. I want you to meditate on that. I want you to remind yourself of this awesome salvation to make sure you haven't slipped, to make sure you haven't become, become jaded and started to take it for granted. You know, this is what happened. If you look at Revelation chapter two, John writes to the church of Ephesus and he tells the church of Ephesus, man, you guys are doing great. I mean, you guys got your doctrine right and you, somebody started preaching a false doctrine and you put them out, you took care of it and you, you're doing this and you're doing this. And he says, but I got one problem and this is an incredible problem. You've lost your first love. You're doing this just out of a sense of obligation. You're just doing this like it's, like it's a job. And he's like, it's not a job. It's a relationship. It's a love relationship between me and you. You've lost your first love. That's easy for us to do. Let me tell you, it's easy for pastors to do. It's so easy to get caught up in the Bible as, the, as, as talking about the Bible is your job. And it just becomes a book that you explain to people. And it's not. It's the living word. It's alive. Remember your first love. Remember what I have done for you. For all of us, let's meditate today on the great cost of this gift. And let's meditate on the great gift forgiveness that is full and free. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have communion. We're going to take time to gather here to, in obedience to Jesus Christ to celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection. This is, this is what this is all about. And so as we do that, we're going to take just a moment. They're going to come up. In fact, you can come up now. And I want to read just one scripture. I'm going to get down here on the floor and talk about what is going on as we take communion. Paul writes about this. He gives us some instructions he says, and when he had given thanks, this is about the Last Supper, when he had given thanks and broke it, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the first thing Paul is telling us is to remember something, to remember what was done, the cross, to remember what I've done for you. All throughout the Bible, this idea of remembering is key. Remember. Are you in a tough time? Remember how God got you out before. Are you, are you, are you depressed? Remember how God was your strength before. Are you in a struggle? Remember how God was there before. So he says, do this in remembrance of me. And he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, see, there's a proclamation. There's a statement. This is who I am. If you come forward and take communion, you are saying, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and my Savior, and I will follow him with my life. That's what you're saying. Listen, if you're not ready to say that, don't come up. It's okay. No one's taking names. No one's noticing. This church is unlike some, and you'll, if you're ever around here very long, you'll notice, can be very chaotic at times. And we have a little bit of a chaotic communion. But the point of it is that everybody, people come when they're ready. And if they're not ready to come, don't come. It's okay. So there's a remembrance, remembrance there's a proclamation. And then in verse 28, he says, but let each person examine, examine themselves and let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So there's an examination. 
What is that about? It's simply saying this. If there is something that you are refusing to deal with, that you refuse to ask forgiveness for, that you refuse, he says, don't, don't, don't drink any. Don't do it. Get that straight. Now, you can get that straight in a heartbeat in confession. You can. That's what repentance and confession is all about. And so I encourage you to do that. But if you have something like, no, this is a part of my life and I will not change it, don't. Paul says some people eat and drink judgment upon themselves by coming up in, 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 caught in sin that they will not deal with. Right? So, so just don't come up. This is the Lord's table. It is open for anyone who says Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. You are welcome to it. What we do is we come up the sides. Is that how we do it? No. We come up the middle. Sides. Chaotic, right? Here we go. I'm about to unleash. We come up the sides, and they're there, and you just pick up the, 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 the little piece of cracker, and you pick up the cup. You go to your seat. You sit there, and you that's between you now. It's between you and God. Just between you and God. You, we don't all eat at the same time or drink at the same time. You do it as you're ready. Come up this side, grab, and come back. This is a time before you come up, you can be praying. After you come up, you can be praying. This is a time for us to what? To remember, right? To examine. That's it. And, to, and to, to realize this is a proclamation of who I stand for. If that's not you, it's okay. We're glad you're here. There's no, nobody looks down on anybody. This is not, you're safe here. Right? And so I'm going to pray, and they're going to take the, and as soon as they're ready, and as soon as you're ready, you just come up at your convenience. Father, thank you for the cross. Lord, I know there are people here that maybe this sounds strange and weird. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would give them light, give them eyes to see. And Lord, just pray that as we do this, that we would remember we would examine, we would proclaim. We are yours. We want to follow you wherever, wherever you lead us. And we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.